Welcome to the NC4 Podcast. We exist to know Christ and make Him known. Discover the power of a connected life by listening to this message from God's Word. Jesus, I thank you for your, who you are, for your passion for your bride, your desire to see us to step into the fullness of all that you have for us. We ask for ears to hear what your spirit is speaking, our hearts to receive that word and let it be nourished by your presence and the power of your Holy Spirit working it into the fullness of the fruition of uh, what you desire to see us be in you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So a few weeks back, Pastor Grubby, he he kicked off the series um, with his handy-dandy definition for the word passion and in the context in which we're using it here this morning. And it's this, passion is a powerful and compelling emotion that causes us to act. A powerful and compelling emotion that causes us to act. Our topic this week is passion for the bride. And of course, we're referring to the bride of Christ, his church. Next week, Pastor Ian will be speaking on passion for the groom. And the title of our message today is, And They Lived Holy Ever After. You know, marriage was God's design, his idea. It's not man's. Man didn't come up with it. God owns the patent on it, and he's not releasing it to anyone, okay? So, even though some of us at times, you know, in the middle of a big argument, we're wondering, this was your idea, God? Come on, or is that just me? (laughs) No, but when we live it out in a way that the scriptures tell us it needs to be lived out, the marriage relationship becomes, um, it becomes a visual aid to the world of what the relationship of Christ is with his bride. And before, long before Adam and Eve were joined together in in the Garden of Eden, God had his son, and the bride in mind. In fact, his eyes saw all the way into what is our future hope in Revelation 19, the marriage supper of the Lamb, where the bride has made herself ready and she is robed with fine linen, pure and bright. Have you ever noticed how beautiful the bride looks on her wedding day? No matter which wedding you go to, the bride is absolutely stunning. How many men remember their wives walking toward them in that day? Anybody? Man, you all have bad memories, I guess. <laughs> no wife, you need to nudge them. Well, um, my husband and I, we got married in California. So after our marriage, we flew back to, <clears throat> excuse me, we flew back to North Carolina. That's where my family's from. And we brought our wedding pictures to show the family that didn't get to attend. Now, my great-grandma, I called her Mama McCurry, she was in her 90s, and she loved chewing tobacco. So she, she chewed tobacco all her life. I mean, they, they were tobacco farmers, so they, every time she spoke, um, especially with certain letters, she would spit. <laughs> And so you'd have to be careful because if you were in the line of fire, you were going to get sprayed with a little bit of tobacco. So the letter P was uh, one of those words that produced a lot of that tobacco. And so 
I was showing her my pictures, and she kept saying, "Oh, it's so pretty," and <laughs> and every time the tobacco would fly out, "Oh, you're so pretty." I'm like, "Oh yes, thank you, Mama. I love you." But seriously, pastors will tell you on the day of a wedding, no matter what a woman looks like in her any in any other day, on her wedding day she is stunning, absolutely stunning. So, what is your view of the bride of Christ? How do you feel about her? Because how we think and feel about the bride of Christ reveals if we know His heart. Toward her, Song of Solomon, which Pastor Grubby taught from a few weeks back. This book is filled with beautiful poetic language that captures the journey of the divine covenantal romance between Christ and His bride. Listen to these words: "Place me like a seal over your heart, like a seal on your arm, for love is as strong as death." Its jealousy as unyielding as the grave, it burns like a blazing fire, like a mighty flame. Many waters cannot quench this love; rivers cannot sweep it away. If one were to give all the wealth of one's house for love, it would be utterly scorned. This is the intensity of Christ's love for His bride. It burns like a blazing fire, and many waters cannot quench His love for us. Now, our text this morning in Ephesians five, it's typically used to help us understand the biblical roles of husband and wife. But today, we're going to search them to see the heart of Jesus for His bride. And as we do, we're going to discover three things. First of all, the driving force behind the passion or the zeal of Jesus. For his beloved, secondly, his desire for her to step into the fullness of who she is to be in him, and finally, our need to see the church, ourselves included, through the eyes of the bridegroom. So, if you have your Bibles, please turn to Ephesians chapter five. We're going to start with verse twenty-five. Husbands. Love your wives, and I'm not just picking on husbands here today, guys. Okay, just heads up on that. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave Himself for her to make her holy, cleansing, cleansing her with the washing of water by the word. He did this to present the church to Himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or anything like that, but holy and blameless. Verse 28. In the same way, husbands are to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hates his own flesh, but provides and cares for it, just as Christ does for the church, since we are members of His body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. And the two will become one flesh. And this was taken from the very first marriage in the Garden, Genesis. The last verse. This mystery is profound, and this means that it is something that is only revealed through the power and the revelation of the Holy Spirit. But Paul says, "I am talking about Christ and the church." 
I had a conversation with Grubby about this text because there's some interesting language and the commentaries don't always line up. And I got some really great insight. He's like a walking everything, encyclopedia, dictionary, commentary. He's pretty amazing. What a gift he has been to us. But here's what he said. The key for interpreting, interpreting this text is found in verse 32. This mystery is profound, but I am talking about Christ and the church. So this means that we need to view human marriage through Christ's relationship with the church, not the other way around. We need to allow heaven's view of marriage to be our starting point, which is our first point. To understand the purposes of God in marriage, we look to Christ's relationship with his bride. Why is this important? Because if we get that switched around and our starting point for viewing our earthly marriage is, our, is based on our broken experiences here on earth with imperfect people, then our understanding is going to be tainted by what we've seen displayed, by abuses we've endured or inflicted, or by whatever the current culture says it should be. This is crucial to understanding marriage the way God designed it. So as we continue the study of our passage, we need to do so with this in view. Christ's relationship with his bride is our model for understanding his purposes in a marriage relationship. So as we move on, let's focus our attention now on the driving force behind the zeal of Jesus for his bride. Verse 25. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church. And of course, this word for love is agape, something we speak of a lot from this pulpit. That selfless, sacrificial, unconditional, loyal love that seeks to demonstrate itself through its actions, not just through words. The Greek, um, excuse me, in the third chapter of Ephesians, Paul says, that he prays this prayer in verse 18. Oh, that you would have the power to comprehend with all the saints what is the length and the width, the height and the depth of God's love, and to know the Messiah's love that surpasses knowledge so that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Holy Spirit, I ask even as we continue to speak this morning that you would reveal this to us, that it would become our experience, not just head knowledge. The love that surpasses knowledge let it be known here today, I pray. John 15, 13, greater love has no one than this, that a person will lay down his life for his friends. Now, in scriptures, we, are, we know that Jesus got a way to pray with the Father by himself. That was his habit. He did that often. And there are two times that I know of that we get a glimpse into the, that private prayer life. The Mount of Transfiguration and the Garden of Gethsemane. The highs and the lows, the height of divinity, the glorious moment where his body was glowing as bright, pure white in his clothing as well. And then we see the depths of his humanity. He's fully God and fully human. Both display who he is, and both were centered around his approaching death. But the Garden of Gethsemane does something to us that each of us can relate to. We've all suffered pain. And so we get this 
this view, this insider's view of Jesus in this moment of deep despair, of great distress. This took place in a play, um, the Garden of Gethsemane, which means the olive oil press, olive oil press. And that's a symbol of what was taking place. The pressures, the weight of all humanity's sin was crashing in on one man. And this is interesting because we don't see him reacting this way before this moment. He was a perfect servant of God that didn't um, respond out of fear of man, out of fear of pain, out of fear of loss. Luther says, never has a man feared death like this man. But why? Why was he responding like this in this moment? He was on the ground crying out to God, if this cup can be removed, please take it from me. But not my will, but yours be done. His sweat was forming in pools of blood dropping to the ground. That's the amount of distress he felt. So what was going on? Was it because of the physical pain that he was about to face, which crucifixion is still to this day the most um, brutal of judicial executions? But it was more than that, much more than that. It was the spiritual and the mental torment that he knew he would have to take on. The weight of the sin of all humanity and the judgment of God for that sin, he would bear the full weight of that wrath. J.I. Packer says this, at Calvary, Jesus would experience the sense of loss of his Father's presence and love, all sense of physical, mental, and spiritual well-being, all enjoyment of God and of all created things, all ease and solace of friendship, all of that would be taken away from him. And in their place was nothing but loneliness, pain, a killing sense of human malice and callousness, and a horror of deep spiritual darkness. And if that's not a description of hell, I don't know what is. He knew before it happened, he knew exactly what was going to take place and what he would experience and yet he still did it. He didn't shrink back. He willingly endured the punishment that should have been ours. What love was displayed even before the cross. If the measure of love is how much it gives, how do we measure this love of our Savior? He gave more than our ability to comprehend. He, his was the greatest demonstration of love for all mankind for all time which is our next point. Christ's love for his bride is the unstoppable force behind all he has done and continues to do on her behalf. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, Hebrews 12, 2. We were the joy set before him. The gaze of his heart set upon the reward of his suffering, us, Going back to our text in verse 25, Christ loved the church and gave himself for her to make her holy, cleansing her with the washing of water by the word. And the Greek word for word here is not logos, but ramati or rhema, his spoken word, which is a word in season for that moment. This is important to understand. The language Paul is using here is a priestly, priestly language. 
signifying that priestly role of Christ over his church to sanctify her, to set her apart through cleansing. And this happens through the washing of his spoken word. And the verb used here for cleansing is a ritual cleansing. It's an ongoing process. It's not a one-time baptism. Christ is beautifying his bride, making her holy with the washing of his word, his living, active, spoken word over her. Which is our next point. Jesus is committed to seeing his bride become all who he says she is. The author and perfecter of our faith is the only one who gets to define our identity. We are who he says we are. We sang that a little bit ago. So how do we reconcile this fact with some of the activity that we see in the body of Christ, the less than noble actions that we see? Well, my response would be, they don't know who they truly are yet. Because if they could see themselves through the eyes of the bridegroom, and they could hear those words spoken over them, they wouldn't want to be anything less. And that's pretty amazing. And for, let me see the hands of the husbands in the room here. Okay. So how does this apply in a practical way? Because Paul is speaking to the husbands and wives. Well, men, in your role as the priest over your household, you get the privilege of giving yourself up to God, of seeking his heart on behalf of your wife for that rhema word, that word that you would speak into her and over her to see her become who she is truly to be in Christ. This is a privilege that you get to join with God in this. It's never a condemning, manipulating, or oppressive word. It's a word of life that flows from the throne room of God directly to you in your role, and it's powerful. This took place recently in my life with um, my husband. At the beginning of the year, God was showing me that there was a shift about to take place in me and what he was doing in me. I didn't tell Barry. I just started praying into it. Barry spoke the word, and he began to pray over me that same, same thing. And when that, that specific word came to pass, somebody came up to him in church, a prophetic voice, and said, you are going to find great joy in watching your wife become who she is. This is going to be a wonderful joy to you as you get to support her pray for her and speak into her. He was confirming everything that we had just experienced and what is being taught here. Husbands, as you do this and you watch your wife become all that she is meant to be in Christ, you are going to find great joy. Great joy. It'll be such a blessing to your heart and to your home. So as I said, Jesus is committed to seeing us become the bride we were destined to be. He is passionate for our holiness. Verse 27, he did this to present the church to him in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or anything like that, but holy and blameless. This is the radiant bride of Christ. All who belong to him from ages past to the end of time 
from every tribe and language and people and nation, those who were at one time unlovely, marred by sin, he makes them lovely and pure. Which leads to our last point. Excuse me. Our ability to see the church through the eyes of Jesus affects how we live out his command to love one another. Do you love her? Do you love the church? I'm asking because this is something that is really important to God. It's easy to be passionate for him, but it's not always easy to have that same passion for his body. <laughs> and in 1, John 1, he, in 1 John, he tells us that if we don't love our brother and sister whom we can see, we cannot love God whom we don't see. Sometimes we see the brokenness of the bride and we think, that's a bride? That's a bridezilla. That, not, not. <laughs> well, guess what? He sees more of her brokenness than you do, and yet he loves her. He wants the best for her. He's seeing that every word that he's spoken is coming to pass. Are we partnering with him in that? He is a faithful bridegroom, and he will never leave his bride nor forsake her. So as I close, I want to invite the worship team to come back up here. And I want to leave you all with this challenge from the first two verses of Ephesians 5. Our next, our last one. Therefore, be imitators of God as dearly loved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. As we do this, our lives become a fragrant offering, well-pleasing to God. In other words, we smell good and we make him smile. And we all want to smell good, right? And we all want to make God smile. So we love because he first loved us. And the love that we have originates from him and it flows through us through the power of the Holy Spirit. This is not something we generate. This is something we receive from him to be lived out. So if you're listening today and you haven't made Jesus your Lord and Savior, whether you're listening online or you're here today, and Jesus is not the king of your life, you don't know that you're going to spend all eternity with him, but you want to know today. We're going to pray this prayer together, and you just pray along. And if you mean it in your heart, there's going to be a shift in your life today. All right, everybody could bow your head. We're going to pray this together. Dear Lord Jesus, I know that I am a sinner and I ask for your forgiveness. I believe you died for my sins and that you rose from the dead. I turn. I turn away from all that I know is wrong and I invite you to come into my life. I want to fully trust you and to follow you as my Lord and Savior. Thank you for the gift of your Holy Spirit. I now receive this gift in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to the NC4 Podcast. 
For more info, visit our website at nc4.org. We believe in the power of a connected life. If you prayed to give your life to Jesus today, we'd love to help you walk it out together. Just text the word Jesus to 610-816-6062.